Hello and welcome to episode 47 of the History of Yugoslav Football podcast. Never mind the boycotts. It's been a little while since we've had occasion to visit the national team, given all that's gone on both in domestic football, with Sviena Zvezda going to the UEFA Cup final and everything that went on around Hajduk and more, and also with events in the nation as a whole. When we left the na- national team last time, they were back under the management of Miljan Miljanic and across the tricky transitional phase that they have been left in after Euro 1976 and become, once again, one of the better sides of world football, courtesy of the emergence of new national stars in the likes of Safet Susic, Blasiskevich and Zlatko Bujevic. Where the four years between 1976 and 1980 had seen a generation without the talent needed to succeed on the pitch, between 1980 and 1984, where we're going to in this episode, Yugoslavia has the talent on the pitch, but is about to be hamstrung by a very different issue. Miljanicism, if you will. Because while the greatest manager Yugoslavia had produced in the 60s and 70s left after 1982, his philosophies were imitated beyond there, and the unfair characterization of his pragmatism as overtly defensive and inflexible would harm Yugoslavia far more than a lack of playing talent ever would. Now, so far in the podcast, Milian Miljanic has probably gotten a pretty sweet deal. His time at Svenis Vesta, his original Yugoslavian national team spell, his time at Real Madrid, all showed him at points at his best. But in spite of what had been an excellent reintroduction to the national side, it's also fair to say that Miljanic was already a bit stuck in his ways. After all, the season prior to leaving the Bernabeu, Real had faded fast, finishing ninth, and after losing the first game in the following 1977-78 season, Miljanic departed to be replaced by Luis Milovny, a board member that would have multiple periods managing Real, and Milovny would make Real far more potent and win that title that season with ease by, well, quite simply doing the things that Milian Miljanic wouldn't. Quite simply, the pace of football was beginning to overtake Miljanic, and as his pragmatism floundered, it began to be confused with caution. Further to that, his successors within Yugoslavia would also be his imitators, meaning that the shadow cast by Miljanic would hang over long after he directly led the national side. So, spoiler alert, things aren't about to be all that great for Yugoslavia in spite of the talent it has. But we begin with our first trip for some time to the Olympics, and to the first of the boycotts mentioned in the title of this episode. The 1980 Olympics were held in Moscow, but it's fair to point out that the idea of boycotting the Olympics wasn't exactly new. It had originally been floated in the mid-1970s in response to the USSR's record on human rights, but the real trigger was the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in late 1979. The USA gave the Soviets a deadline to withdraw from Afghanistan or face an Olympic boycott, and they began pressurising allies to follow suit. The USR assumed they were bluffing and didn't blink. They simply bet that the IOC would defuse the argument, which they certainly tried to, meeting with both President Jimmy Carter and the head of the Soviet Politburo, Leonid Brezhnev. Meanwhile, 
the USA attempted a charm offensive to swing as many nations around to joining in the boycott as possible, even sending Muhammad Ali around Africa to convince leaders on that continent. A total of 65 countries just plain old didn't turn up to the games, with others sending vastly reduced delegations. When it came to the football, it meant some big changes. Yugoslavia had qualified anyway and went as normal, but of the other qualifiers, Finland were replaced by Norway, Spain played under the Olympic flag, Nigeria replaced Ghana, Zambia replaced Egypt, Iraq replaced Malaysia, Syria replaced Iran, Cuba replaced the USA, and Venezuela replaced Argentina. It was clearly a severely weakened field, and Yugoslavia took a strong side. Well-known names included both Slatko and Zoran Vujovic, Milos Sestic, Shrebenko Repcic, Boro Primrac, Ante Miracevic, and Niki Chakruchkov. <laughs> As B-teams go, it was a formidable one, and was led by Milianic's successor at Zvezda, Ivan Toplak. And so it proved in the group stage, opening with an easy 2-0 win over Finland, and then a 3-2 win over Costa Rica, where the scoreline flattered the Central American side. Already through, Yugoslavia allowed Iraq a point in the final group game to allow Iraq to progress to the knockout stages at the expense of the Finns. The initial knockout stage was also predictably uneven, with there only really being four decent sides at the Olympics, most from Eastern Europe, the quarterfinal stage saw each face off with far smaller opposition. Yugoslavia's opponents of Algeria provided little in the way of competition, with Yugoslavia easing through to the semis 3-0 in Minsk. With four socialist countries in the last four, you would perhaps have expected some sort of clandestine arrangement to kick in to ensure that the good old USSR didn't suffer the ignominy of failing to win Olympic gold on their own turf. But you'd have been wrong to think that, because East Germany beat them in the semis, courtesy of an early goal from Wolf Rudiger Netz. Yugoslavia, meanwhile, were similarly downed early. 2-0 against the eventual gold medalist Czechoslovakia, putting them into a third-place playoff against the Soviets, and while the USSR weren't to get gold, they did manage bronze courtesy of goals from the great Armenian Khoren Hovhannisian, who had missed the semi-final due to injury, and also Sergei Andreev. 1980 would be the last Olympics that would be amateur only, a rule which had basically meant that the latter stages would always be dominated by socialist countries, which put forward teams which were fully professional in all but name and ideology. Come 1984, the rules will have been changed to limit squads to players who had earned five or fewer full international caps, something which would have leveled the playing field had it not been the case that many of the affected countries by that would boycott anyway. But we'll go across the Atlantic to those Olympics later in this episode, because before 1984 would come 1982 and another World Cup campaign to embark upon. Yugoslavia were given a testing qualification group, with Denmark and Italy both in with them, along with Greece and at least one set of true minnows in Luxembourg. Yugoslavia would get off to a perfect start, thrashing Luxembourg 5-0 away, before defeating Denmark 2-1 Ljubljana to lead into their third group game against the Italians, which would see Italy convincingly win 2-0. That would, however, 
be Yugoslavia's last defeat of the group. Greece would be thrashed 5-1 at Poljud, Denmark beaten 2-1 in Copenhagen before they rounded off the group with a draw in Belgrade against Italy, another demolition of Luxembourg, this time in Novi Sad, and a routine win in Greece to secure top spot and qualification for 1982. In a difficult group, Yugoslavia had eased through and come ahead of genuinely one of the world's best sides. From that defeat in Italy, Yugoslavia would actually go unbeaten all the way to the World Cup itself, albeit that does come with a rather large caveat. Yugoslavia didn't actually play a single game between the end of their qualifying group in November 1981 and the World Cup itself in mid-June 1982. No pre-tournament friendlies, no nothing. Which, in a large part, is possibly why what happened at the World Cup happened. They were grouped against Honduras, who had had a mostly domestic squad, Northern Ireland, who of course had a pretty memorable tournament, and the host Spain, who, in spite of hosting, didn't exactly have a vintage team at this point in time. Yugoslavia, meanwhile, took perhaps their strongest squad to a World Cup post-1960 true. Dragan Pantelic was a long-term keeper at this point. The midfield boasted the primes of Ivan Gudelia, Vladimir Petrovic and Ivica Suryak, and the attacking lineup had massive strength and depth. Slatko Vujovic was the reigning Yugoslav footballer of the year, of course, with his twin brother Zoran also coming along in defence. Safet Susic was a tournament away from the move that would define his career. And Vahid Khalilovic was just coming out of his first season at Nantes and would go after this into being the top scorer in the French league the following season. They were, quite simply, a very, very good side that had the attacking talent to dismantle most opposition. In theory. In practice, while you would look at that squad description, and feel free to just go and look at the squad on Wikipedia if you want, and think that they would be best suited to playing on the front foot, Yugoslavia essentially played a 1-3-4-1-1 that lacked width, given that the midfielders chosen didn't really want to go wide, except Petkovic, and even he preferred to play in the zones that Susic would want to play in. To give the formation some credit, playing this sort of conservative football was pretty much all the rage at the time, but given how the group panned out and that a team possessing such talented attacking talents only scored twice at the entire tournament, it shows that it didn't really fit the squad Miljanic had available to him. Yugoslavia's campaign in Spain began against Northern Ireland with what was one of the poorest World Cup games ever played. In high temperatures, neither team fashioned anything more than a half chance over 90 minutes, with the highlights being a couple of shots from around 25 yards that went a couple of feet wide. The loudest the crowd were all game was when, after chanting España, the stadium PA put the Spanish flag up on the big screen. Yes, it was a game so bad the crowd weren't just chanting for another team, they were indulged in it. Spain, Yugoslavia's next opponents, had stuttered to a draw in their group opener against Honduras. Yugoslavia took the lead through Gudelia in the 10th minute with a close-range header from a flicked-on three kick. But Spain were hosts and were giving a helping hand in this game, equalising from Juanito from a 14th-minute penalty, where the foul took place at least a yard outside the box. 
genuinely do watch that. It is one of the worst penalty calls you will ever see. The penalty itself would initially be taken by Lopez Uparte and stuck about a yard wide, but was then ordered to be retaken as the goalkeeper wasn't on his line, which, to be fair to the referee in this case, he wasn't. He was barely even in the six-yard box at the time. Second chance, Juanito took the kick and made no mistake. There was no such controversy about the second goal, as an in-swinging corner to the near post was missed by everyone, allowed to bounce in the middle of the six-yard box, and then made its way to Saura at the back for a tap-in. Yugoslavia had controlled much of the possession and the play, as Suliak imposed himself on the Spanish midfield, but came away with nothing, courtesy of a poor refereeing decision and some even poorer set-piece defending. Still, all Yugoslavia needed to do was beat Honduras and hope that Spain didn't lose to Northern Ireland the day after. I mean, surely Northern Ireland weren't going to beat Spain. Yugoslavia did at least do their part, controlling the game against the Central Americans, limiting to the them to a couple of chances on the break as Yugoslavia pressed and pressed for a winner. It came in the 88th minute after a blatant foul in the box on Sestic gave Petrovic the chance to slot home a penalty, which he duly did in the coolest of fashions. Of course, the following day, Northern Ireland went and produced one of the most famous results in their, and perhaps World Cup history, defeating Spain in Valencia, and Yugoslavia were out on goals scored, having only scored two compared to Spain's three. Spain were no great side, and in the second round group, they were swiftly dismissed by West Germany and England. Miljanic would leave Yugoslavia to join Valencia, but as this tournament had shown, I think, his magic had more or less gone. He would only last a season at Valencia, turning a side that had qualified for Europe into a side that almost got relegated in under a season, and for us, that's Miljanic more or less gone from our timeline for good. He will reappear again in a decade for a very quick cameo. But the past 15 years of Miljan Miljanic being the premier manager of Yugoslavia were now over in both literal and a symbolic sense. Yugoslavia had taken a very decent score to Spain and Miljanic simply didn't use it to the best of its abilities, turning what seems a top-heavy attacking side into one knocked out because they didn't score enough in what was an exceptionally low-scoring group. Yugoslavia were talented but negative, and with those lined up to take over very much protégés of Miljanic, that didn't look like changing anytime soon. His direct replacement was a name very familiar to us, Toza Veselinovic. Toza was over a decade into his coaching career that had taken him both sides of the Atlantic with some success, particularly at Vojvodina. As national manager, however, he would be known for one defining trait, changing the team around as often as possible. Over the next two years of his management, more than 60 players would play for Yugoslavia. He only looked after the side for 18 games. The result was a side which was often able to get through games on individual talent alone, but swiftly exposed by better opposition. In that regard, their qualifying group for Euro 84 was pretty pleasant. Norway, Bulgaria and Wales were all decent, but Yugoslavia were clearly the strongest of the sides in the group. Regardless, 
there were some extremely unpromising results. Yugoslavia opened the group with an away loss in Norway and then, in December 1982, played out a crazy four-all draw with the Welsh in Titograd, where the away side would come from 4-2 down to get the draw. It took until the final game of the group in December 1983 for Yugoslavia to actually qualify in the most dramatic of fashions. A 91st minute goal from Partizan's Ljubomir Radanovic coming to beat Bulgaria 3-2. Had Radanovic not scored so late, it would have been Wales going to France for the tournament instead. In mid-1983, Yugoslavia had already taken a trip to France and what would surely be a concerning preview of what would happen a year later. An inexperienced side took on a weakened French team and got absolutely hammered 4-0. A few weeks later, they take on West Germany in Luxembourg and get beaten 4-2. Come the autumn, two more friendlies would take place, a loss in Basel to the Swiss and a draw in Belgrade against, again, a weakened French side. Unlike 1982, Yugoslavia did at least have a couple of pre-tournament friendlies. Tight results with there still being experimentation in the squad, and a side that was notably weaker than that of two years earlier, and even more defensive. Only one player, Safet Susic, came from outside of Yugoslavia, and the squad contained a couple of young players who would become mainstays of the squad going forward, even if they weren't at this point. Shrekko Katanic of Olympia, and... Welcome to the timeline, Dragan Stojkovic, currently a Radniki niece. The latter was only 19 at this point and would of course grow into being one of the nation's greats, and many would say its greatest. But Pixie was about to see his side picked apart. For the first game in the tournament against the talented Belgian side, Toza set his side out in what was a 1-3-3-1-2 albeit uh, a bit of an odd one. Shreko Katanic, a natural midfielder, was dropped into centre of defence. Zako Vujovic was shoved out wide, with Zafet Susic acting as centre forward. They were, quite simply, a bunch of square pegs in round holes, with very predictable results. Belgium winning 2-0 with both goals in the first half. Yugoslavia didn't look fluent. Given that most of the players had actually rarely played together with what was the constant rotation within the squad, it wasn't a surprise, and much worse was to come. Their next opponents, Denmark, had seen their opening game against the host, France, not go very well, with star player Alan Simonsen, he uh, of the Zvezda Munch and Gladbach fame, injured and out of their next game against the Yugoslavs. It was, however, still a pretty talented team, led by legendary names such as Soren Lerby and, of course, Michael Laudrup. Yugoslavia rotated from the Belgian game and got demolished. Goalkeeper Tomislav Ivkovic was brought in, having travelled to the tournament as second choice, and was at fault for firstly Frank Arneson's opener on eight minutes, deflecting it in its near post, and then making a poor attempt to come out for a ball allowing Bergrain to score on the quarter-hour mark. Down 2-0 before 20 minutes, heads eventually dropped, and discipline fell with farcical late goals conceded as Denmark eventually won 5-0. Yugoslavia were out with a game left to play, and the team left for them to play were the hosts, France, who were through and coming out of a 5-0 win of their own against Belgium. 
Yugoslavia had plenty to fear, but finally, Veselinovic picked his players where they wanted to play. The result was the most competent performance of the tournament against the best side of the tournament. Milos Sestic would open the scoring with a thunderous strike from the edge of the box on 30 minutes, taking Yugoslavia in 1-0 up, in spite of Chires cracking the bar with a 25-yard volley. The French, however, took over in the second half, courtesy of a masterclass from Michel Platini. His first goal was slid under the keeper from a one-on-one, his second three minutes later with a diving header, and he would round off a hat-trick with a casual free kick on 77 minutes. The French genius in 1984 would have the biggest impact, but the last word of the game would be from a Yugoslav genius of the future. Dragan Pixi Stojkovic dispatching a penalty at the second attempt into the top corner. France would, of course, go on to win the tournament, with Milos Milutinovic replacing Torza Veselinovic at the end of the tournament. Before Milos Milutinovic would go into trying to get to the 1986 World Cup, he would have one friendly against Scotland, and that would end in an embarrassing 6-1 thrashing, but also with debuts for Darko Panchev and Vadil Vokri, who would score. It took us all this way until the mid-80s, but finally our first major players from Macedonia and Kosovo are with us. But Euro 1984 wasn't the last tournament of the year, oh no. That would be the Olympics in Los Angeles, and the first Olympics with the altered qualification rules we mentioned earlier. In spite of those rules, plenty of Eastern countries had qualified, including the Czechs, East Germany and the USSR. But for the second Olympics in a row, the football tournament would be hit hard by boycotts, as those three Eastern nations all pulled out citing security concerns around the ramping up in rhetoric in the US from Reagan. But most saw the boycott as what it was, a simple bit of tit-for-tat after the boycott in Moscow four years earlier. A total of 18 countries refused to turn up, most of which were organised with the USSR. Yugoslavia took a squad that really wasn't appreciably weaker than if the player regulations hadn't changed. In the squad were Dragan Stojkovic and Sveko Kalanic, who had had major parts at the Euros, along with those who would become prominent names going forward like Borok Fekvic, Stepan Deveric, Milko Jurovsky and Mehmed Vasilevic. Unlike other tournaments, there were recognisable names in the other squads as well. Cameroon, managed by Yugoslav Radvoj Ognjanovic, who had been a major part of Radniki Belgrade's golden age in the 50s, brought none other than Roger Miller. Brazil had Dunga in midfield, West Germany had Andres Bremer, Italy even had Franco Baresi in the team. This was an obviously stronger field than in Moscow four years earlier, but Yugoslavia would still qualify from the group with ease. Defeating Cameroon 2-1, sorry, defeating Cameroon 2-1 after going 1-0 down to a Roger Miller goal, then beating Canada 2-0 and finally Iraq 4-2 courtesy of Deberich hat-trick after going in at half-time 2-0 down. The highlight of the tournament would come in the quarter-finals, knocking out West Germany 5-2 with Borok Fekvic knocking home a hat-trick. The run would come to an end in the semi-finals against the French in front of 97,000 at the Rose Bowl, coming from 2-0 down once again but eventually falling 4-2 after extra time. A 
100,000 people would then watch a 2-1 come from behind victory against the Italians as Yugoslavia secured the bronze medal at the Olympics. To get rid of the Olympics from our timeline once and for all, um, Yugoslavia did end up going to Seoul, albeit with a weaker squad. Still with Katanec, Pixie and a new rather famous addition in Davos Shukar, along with uh, old Kilmarnock favourite Dragoj Lekovic, who would be injured in their opening loss to Australia, they were between generations and in a frankly horrible group against a Brazil side that included Tafarel and up front Romario and Bebeto. Brazil would eventually lose the final to the USSR, who had built to the tournament for the couple of years prior by purposefully limiting the involvement of certain players in the national side, and as a result, bringing in very much an overpowered side to the games. They may not have been able to go around player regulations as they did previously, but they were still able to work their way around them. But anyway, by 1988, well, another generation had enraptured Yugoslavia. And that generation is one we're going to get very acquainted to as we go along. But next time on the History of Yugoslav Football Podcast, we jump all the way back to 1981 and to the 1981-82 First League season, where a team we've not had cause to mention for some time are about to shoot back to prominence, courtesy of Chico and Chiro. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, as always, if you would like to leave us a review on your podcast service, please do. The more, the merrier. Um, but otherwise, I will catch you next time.